I want to highlight to our viewers this idea of that the Chinese regime has civil military fusion as one of its you know top seven national priorities. So this, you know, the sale, the cornering of the market for these high voltage transformers is not is as much a military decision, right, as it is a you know state business decision, right. And you know there is this interview that that, that came came out later by you know, an expert basically saying that they found something in this transformer that would allow it to be turned off right. Right, remotely. We imported massive, I think it's like a 500,000 pound electric transformer from China. They decided to send it to one of our national labs, we did, when it came in as a country. And they found hardware that was put into that that had the ability for somebody in China to switch it off. If this device that we depend on for the lifeblood of our modern civilization was able to be manipulated, if it was able to be turned off. The U.S. electrical grid is critically dependent on extra high voltage transformers made in China, says Tommy Waller, president of the Center for Security Policy. He's an expert on the U.S. grid and also stars in the documentary Grid Down, Power Up. And that's something that the communist Chinese, uh, that they understand about our society our dependence on electricity. Why is industry allowing these vulnerabilities to exist? And what happens if the electric grid goes down? So 1977, there was a 24-hour blackout in New York City. There were more than 4,500 arrests of people who were looting, more than 550 police officers injured in the line of duty, and over $300 million worth of damage in that city in 24 hours. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellek. Tommy Waller, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. Tommy, about three years ago, as we're filming in May of 2020, President Trump basically signed an executive order declaring an emergency around the national grid. And this happened after a transformer, one of these large high voltage transformers in the grid of Chinese manufacture was basically inspected you know, by authorities. From what I understand, the results of that inspection are classified, but this grid emergency ensued. Tell me what happened and, and how this whole realization that we've had since then has progressed. Sure, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, it was May 1st, 2020, uh, an executive order that declared, as you said, a grid security emergency. And it was a recognition that our bulk power system has really uh, now become dependent on certain countries that are, that are adversaries, that, that uh, really are hostile to the United States, including communist China. And so in this case, uh, as you mentioned, there's this transformer uh, was seized by the federal government uh, the year before, 2019. You can read about it in the Wall Street Journal. And that transformer was brought to Sandia National Laboratory where it was inspected. And so the result of it was that uh, here's a recognition that this really critical part of our grid. I mean, extra high voltage transformers, many experts consider to be the backbone of our modern grid, and I can explain why. But that if this device that we depend on for the lifeblood of our modern civilization uh, was able to be manipulated, if it was able to be turned off, uh, then that could be extremely problematic for us. And that's something that the communist Chinese, uh, that they understand about our society 
our dependence on electricity. And so it, it's a, a very worrisome vector of attack that the Trump administration recognized, that they tried through executive order to address. And unfortunately, uh, on the first day of the current Biden administration, uh, that executive order was suspended. And so our nation's imported about another 100 transformers from China uh, in the ensuing period. We're now somewhere around 400 in the U.S. grid. And I just want to get you to tell me the scale of these things. Like even so I watched this the documentary Grid Down Power Up recently which you featured as an expert in and they did they talk a little bit about, you know, how to actually like move these things around and and get them installed. This is a bit of an issue in itself and just trying to imagine what that would look like without power. That's right. right. Yeah, yeah, the you know, so we talk about the grid, right? When we say the, the grid, we're talking about the whole system that generates electricity, transmits it and distributes it, right? And so in order to transmit that electricity, normally it's over long distances. You know, you think about the power plants that produce our, our, our power, they're not right next to the population centers. And so these extra high voltage transformers are needed to step up the voltage and then to bring it back down, right? And it's that high voltage that allows it to travel those long distances. Well, these assets are absolutely critical. Think about if, you, if that transformer stopped working for any reason, then you're not moving that electricity from where it's produced to where it's needed, right? And so the assets themselves, the large ones, it, they take years. I mean, it used to be a lead time of about a year. Uh, most of these are made overseas, unfortunately. And now, I mean, even the, the current Secretary of Energy, Jennifer Granholm, you know, mentioned that with the war in Ukraine, uh, with the electrification of so many things uh, in, in the world and in our country, that the lead time for these assets has gone from about a year to more like four years, right? And so to, to your to point- To build one if you're gonna commission right, it. To build and to import it. And, and you know, there's only so many rail cars and so many uh, trailers uh, that, that can transport these things across the country. When, when you look at that Wall Street Journal article, Rebecca Smith authored about this particular Chinese transformer, you just look at the cover picture in, in the article and you see the size of the trailer to transport this thing. I mean, there's only, there's only so many of those assets, right? So we can't afford to lose these for really any reason, whether it's because they were manufactured uh, with malicious intent to manipulate them, uh, or if they're attacked in, in different forms of, of attack, which we can talk about, we can't afford to lose them. Let's start here. Um, how, what, what does a situation look like where power goes down? Uh, in, a, in a significant portion of the country. Yeah, well, all we have to do is, is look at history, right? So let's, let's take New York City, okay? So 1977, there was a 24-hour blackout in New York City. It was a, a natural form of electromagnetic pulse, EMP. It was a lightning strike. So a lightning strike uh, hit a, a, a substation in New Jersey. It caused a blackout in New York City. In a 24-hour period, there were more than 4,500 arrests of people who were looting, more than 550 police officers injured in the line of duty, and over $300 million worth of damage in that city in 24 hours. So you think about society and our dependence on electricity. I mean, within hours, the water stops flowing. I mean, if in an urban environment, right, it takes electricity to pump that water. So if you're in an urban environment, you lose water right away. Over time, you lose the ability to process wastewater, right? Refrigeration is so critical to our, to our food system, right? There is a, a very significant nexus between food security and national security. 
and food security depends on electricity. So every single way that you look at it, modern society is not prepared to live without electricity. And so in, in short order, you have suffering and you have chaos and you have societal collapse when we lose portions of our grid. And our enemies know that. So grid down, power up asserts that as few as just nine of these power stations or substations around the entire U.S., if nine were taken down somehow, by whatever means, that could actually result in a complete systemic failure of the grid. That, when I heard that, I thought, that's how, how could that even be possible? Can you explain this? Sure, sure. Yeah, well, the film, so Grid Down, Power Up, the documentary, uh, does cover that. But it, it wasn't the documentary that discovered it. It was actually the federal government, right? The Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, or FERC, which oversees our bulk power system. And this came in the wake uh, of a physical attack, physical sabotage. Uh, your viewers may remember 2013 uh, that a substation in April of that year, a substation right outside of San Jose was attacked uh, by gunmen. It was a very highly professional attack covered in the Wall Street Journal, uh, Rebecca Smith, same, same uh, reporter, that discussed this sophisticated attack on this substation. And so FERC did a study, a classified study in the wake of that uh, attack. And, and what they discovered was if an adversary knew which nine substations to attack, that that could cause cascading failures that could black out the whole country for an extended period of time. And, and it's that cascading failure that, I mean, we've experienced this before, um, August 14, 2003. Uh, some may remember the, the great Northeast blackout. That was a cascading failure from a tree branch in Ohio striking the transmission line, right? A single point of failure caused a cascading blackout that resulted in 55 million customers losing power, some for up to two weeks, right? So whether it's, whether it's Mother Nature or whether it's an adversary, uh, it, it is a system that can be taken down if it's not properly protected. It's shocking how quickly and easily society can start breaking down, right? And this is, we've actually kind of seen that um, in our society to some extent with the, you know, for example, the lack of application of certain laws in certain situations, right? And you see, you know, Portland comes to mind, right, as, as an example, but this same thing has been replicated in other places. It's very, it's, it doesn't take a lot, it seems, to get, you know, things which we are or unthinkable, you know, a few years ago happening, you know, on the streets. So it lends credibility to the idea. Like, I, I, I'm resistant to the idea. Power goes out, suddenly you have a full anarchy going on. How does that happen? But actually, it, 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 this seems a lot more credible to me today than it did even a few years ago. For a society to be resilient, um, it needs to be prepared. It needs to recognize these threats. Uh, and, and for it to bounce back, there needs to be virtue, right? Think about how so much of our society uh, even today lacks virtue, where it, it, instead of, you know, and, and I should say that in many cases, of course, you see, you know, in the wake of hurricanes, you know, if, whether it's Hurricane Harvey in Texas, you know, the Cajun Navy comes from Louisiana to Texas, you absolutely have circumstances where good-hearted people, whether it's in America or anywhere else in the world, good-hearted people will come to aid others, right? But to your point, over time, our society in America has become far less resilient, far more dependent, and really um, lacking in virtue and the type of 
uh, compassion and, and um, willingness to help a neighbor where, you know, years ago, uh, those qualities were far more, um, they were far more uh, present in right. society. Well, and and uh, to your point, I'm not going to belabor this, but I do think the COVID-19 pandemic exposed this, what the reality that you're just discussing. Let's jump into the nuts and bolts of it, okay? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Like how there, there are multiple serious possible points of failure, right? And some of them natural and some of them, you know, terrorism and, you know, sure. uh, state actors and so forth. So I wanna, I wanna start off with that. And the, this, this obvious example, like, so how is it that we started importing these absolutely critical pieces of infrastructure, right? I mean, I, I, I'm just imagining here, we imported 100, you're saying. We don't, I don't know if they've all been deployed by now, but just 100, I don't, how many are in the grid already? And just nine of those, if those could be compromised, potentially, or 20 or 30 or whatever, right, could shut the whole grid down. That is a wild, wild point of failure, but possible point of failure. Right, so how do we get here? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, in, in a lot of similar ways to, to where we are as a nation and our dependence on China for lots of different things, right? So we know that the Chinese military has, uh, you know, been not just the military, the, the CCP, has been executing unrestricted warfare against the rest of the free world, pre predominantly the United States, right? And so one method of unrestricted warfare is looking for these critical vulnerabilities of a society and figuring out how to exploit those. And so in this case, you know, what, what the Chinese did, it was genius, right? They identified uh, that, for example, these transformers need a certain type of steel to be manufactured, grain-oriented steel. So what did the Chinese do? They dumped into the market massive amounts of grain-oriented steel and they cornered the market for even the precursors that are needed to create the transformers. I'm sure you and your viewers are very familiar with uh, the, the inexpensive um, aspect of purchasing products from China, which is made possible by terrible labor, uh, you know, in some cases, you know, slave labor, if you want to call it that. And also currency control. Yeah. Currency yeah, control. Right. I mean, multiple factors, but yes. Exactly. Yeah. And so, so the, the CCP has used these different factors um, to, to corner the market on an asset that any modern civilization needs to survive, right? And so what that led to is a lot of other manufacturers being put out of business, right? Where the utility industry looks and they say, okay, well, I've got to make an investment on a transformer. What's the prices of these things, right? Uh, any, any investment is going to result in the utility spending money and the ratepayers, all of us who pay our, our electricity bills, uh, having to you know, potentially pay more the more they spend, right? And so it's understandable for them to look to save money. And so that's exactly one avenue that the Chinese used uh, in order to, to get into that market of being able to provide these transformers. And so um, we're in a spot now where our country, we need to number one, we need to identify where these transformers are and get them inspected. And then we need to be able to produce these domestically. It, it, you know, ideally onshoring production. And if, if, if not, friendshoring, you know, having allies produce them and ensuring that those allies are not using components that come from communist China. How many more of these have been inspected to date? So we know that one has been inspected at Sandia National Laboratory. That's all we know. And, and we know that a, a president of the United States declared an emergency on May 1st of 2020 okay. after that, right? Um, and so, so we know this is a big deal, right? 
The good thing is that there are people, even if the federal government isn't moving as fast as they should on this, which they need to move much faster, right? Uh, states are waking up, right? So you look at Texas, for example. Texas has its own grid. The last legislative session, they passed the Lone Star Protection Act, or Infrastructure Protection Act is what it was called. And it was designed to be able to, at least moving forward in a state like Texas, to identify whether, you know, critical infrastructure components were going to be coming from adversaries to make sure problems like this don't happen in that state. So this is something that if the federal government's dragging its feet, that can be taken on at the state and local level. Because at the federal government level, there's, there's really there's regulatory capture. It's so important to think about how to address this. And I actually, I want to cover that extensively in the interview. Before we go there, I want to highlight to our viewers this idea of that the Chinese regime has civil military fusion as one of its, you know, top seven national priorities. So this, you know, the sale, the cornering of the market for these high voltage transformers is not is as much a military decision, right, as it is a you know state business decision, right? And you know there is this interview that that, that came came out later by, you know, an expert basically saying that they found something in this transformer that would allow it to be turned off right. right remotely. We imported massive, I think it's like a 500,000 pound electric transformer from China. They decided to send it to one of our national labs, we did, when it came in as a country. And they found hardware that was put into that that had the ability for somebody in China to switch it off. It's possible these things are in the system. The thing that scares the crap out of me is that this is just actually one way, shocking way, right, that the system can be compromised. But we actually have, like, I think we, we discussed, I think, six potential routes, both, you know, in nature and also, you know, basically human-induced, whether or not intentional, intentional or not. So why don't, give, me, give me a picture of these, yeah. Yeah, well, just to, to reinforce your point about the, the civil-military fusion, right? So we know the Chinese have executed unrestricted warfare, which includes economic warfare. But let's back up even further. Like, let's go a couple thousand years back to Sun Tzu, right, who wrote, you know, The Art of War. He said, the supreme art of war is to subdue your enemy without fighting. This is the way they do it, right? And so to, to answer the question about the different vectors, uh, and I think we should go to mother nature uh, after, but let's just talk for a second about human-induced um, threats to the grid, right? So we talked already a little bit about physical sabotage, like what happened in California. We just saw this in North Carolina uh, just at the end of last year. You know, rifle fire, there's lots of different ways that you can, that you can harm the grid physically, cyber attack, right? Electromagnetic attack, which could be either localized, a directed energy weapon, or nuclear uh, electromagnetic pulse. Um, and then the one we just talked about with respect to this grid security emergency declared by President Trump and then suspended by President Biden was supply chain, right? And then finally, you look at just policies. There, there will be blackouts if we continue some of the policies that our government uh, has, has applied up upon the nation just due to physics. I mean, you can't, you can't shut down large baseload power generators like nuclear, coal, fossil fuel plants and replace it with renewables where the sun only shines and the wind only blows intermittently and also at the same time 
electrify everything, right? So you think about the draw, the demand that electric vehicles and electric vehicle charging stations have on the grid. That's going to require a lot more electricity. Yet, because of lots of different government policies, we're shutting down the largest producers of electricity. Physics will not allow us to continue to have the lights on, the, the path that we're heading. So it's policies uh, that are human-induced and then actually, you know, malicious action by humans that can take the grid down. And, and the reality, Jan, is that right now the grid is so vulnerable to some forms of threat from Mother Nature that even if we deterred all of our human adversaries from taking it down, it's 100% certain at some point the grid will go down because of solar weather. And that's a warning that I've issued at least twice personally to the Secretary of Energy, uh, Jennifer Granholm. Uh, and so far, it doesn't look like we're doing nearly what we need to do about it, even though it's a completely fixable problem. So the system is vulnerable to these basically electromagnetic pulses, whether from a solar flare or from an, you know, an EMP or, right. or a nuclear weapon detonated at high altitude or, or you know, that's right. God forbid, closer than that. Yes, that's right. I mean, in, in terms of, you know, if we spend a minute or two to talk about the EMP phenomenon, right? Because some viewers might think, well, you know, that sounds like science fiction, right? In fact, unfortunately, over the, you know, in the past, there was some ridicule, you know, oh, you're worried about EMP, like where's your, where's your tinfoil hat, right? This is a real threat. Uh, our, our military hypothesized that uh, there would be uh, an effect when they detonated a nuclear weapon in the, in the exo-atmosphere because they discovered in our ground tests, our ground bursts, that any conductor that was in the source region of a nuclear detonation, so say, a, you know, um, decades ago when they did these ground burst nuclear tests, they would build mock towns and mock cities around it. They would conduct a nuclear test. And what they discovered was that the electric grid wires that, you know, were in that vicinity of the blast would be highly charged with a current and it would travel down those wires and catastrophically ruin assets that were hundreds of miles away. Source region electromagnetic pulses, what they call it. And so they thought, well, this may actually also happen if we detonate a nuclear weapon in space in the exo-atmosphere, right? So 30 kilometers or higher up into space. And that's exactly what we did. The United States and the Russians, the Soviets, detonated nuclear weapons. They're called high-altitude nuclear uh, bursts, right? Atmospheric nuclear tests. And the results were a, a, a pulse, electromagnetic pulse that was far worse than they ever expected. A lot of the test equipment was actually ruined, right? So our test took place about 900 miles from Hawaii. Uh, it turned the lights off in Hawaii, right? And so both sides, the Soviets and the Americans, discovered they had this incredible, really super weapon. And so they signed an atmospheric nuclear test ban treaty, stopped testing these in the atmosphere, and it became a highly classified uh, knowledge that this was a method of attack. Our country then spent billions of dollars hardening our nuclear weapon systems, our command and control systems against this. So when people ridicule and say, you know, where's your tinfoil hat? You're worried about EMP. No, it, the U.S. Defense Department has been worried about EMP for a long time. The problem is that we didn't protect the life-sustaining infrastructures, like the electric grid, against this really catastrophic threat. Well, and you don't need a nuclear weapon either. Like you, right. there are the, there are 
these uh, EMP devices, I, as I understand it, again, from the film, that there's even suitcase size ones that have a kind of more localized That's right. effect, but there's larger ones. That, so this is, this is, none of this is actually theoretical. Not at all. No, a yeah. directed energy weapon, I mean, our, our own military, there are systems that our military has uh, where, you know, they can use a directed energy weapon to shut down electric infrastructure. I mean, we have um, the CHAMP, you know, cruise missile system can produce localized EMP effects. It can pick out a building among other buildings and put a directed energy, a pulse into that building, right? And so uh, this technology does exist. And, it, and so whether it's, a, you know, of course, a high altitude nuclear EMP would be devastating because of the, the impact it would have, the widespread impact it would have. Uh, but regardless, even if it were a localized effect, if, if someone found out which of those nine substations to attack with a radio frequency weapon, and they did it, and those substations were unprotected, it results in the same kind of blackout. And you're also saying that uh, the solar flare can actually have that exact same effect, right? Yeah. And so that's why you're saying it's a 100% chance that if the system is not hardened, it's going to go down at some point right. because there's a 100% chance almost that, that one of these flares will happen. Right. Yes, yeah, so solar weather it's a natural form of EMP. And I'll just briefly explain. When we talk about nuclear EMP, there are three types of pulse. And I won't go into the details. You know, your viewers can read all about this, right? E1 and E2 are the fast pulse. Uh, the E3 component of a nuclear weapon is very similar to what happens when the sun. The sun produces a coronal mass ejection, this highly charged particles that, uh, that leave the sun and travel into space. Happens all the time. In fact, just, uh, just last month, well, in March, there was a massive solar storm. It just it happened to be the opposite side of the sun. Had it traveled towards Earth, we, could, we might not be having this interview right now. And the reason is these highly charged particles, they react with the Earth's magnetosphere, right? In fact, um, in the northern latitudes, people can see aurora borealis, the, the northern lights. That's the visual depiction of the electromagnetic energy generated when these particles slam into our magnetosphere. So you think about just you know, for the sake of viewers, uh, uh, an explanation. If we were to start an engine like our lawnmower, for example, there's a magnetosphere there. There's copper wire and a magnet. When you pull, the movement between the, the copper wire and the magnet creates electromagnetic energy that travels down to your spark plug and starts that engine. The earth, that magnetosphere, when it moves and it heaves and it wobbles, either due to a nuclear blast or highly charged particles from the sun, a coronal mass ejection, that movement induces current into the Earth's crust. And what do we know about electricity, right? It takes the path of least resistance. So as the Earth's crust has these currents induced and it, says, and, and it sees a transmission line, for example, if the conductivity of that transmission line is less than the Earth, it moves up through the grid. Which right? of course it will be because that's in, what its purpose is. In many areas, in many areas. And it, it depends, and one of the good things is we have scientists, USGS geomagnetism program that, that are literally surveying the conductivity of North America, the crust of the earth, mm. to figure out in different areas how conductive it is. But what we know is that in the past, that conductivity has resulted in electric infrastructure being ruined. And so 1921, we're here in Washington, D.C. right now, right? In 1921, there was a solar storm. They call it the railroad storm. Why? Because there were railroad stations in Connecticut and along the Northeast that caught fire and burned to the ground. Well, why did they catch fire? Because the telegraph operators uh, that had telegraph lines that were, you know, 100 or plus you know, kilometers long had these ground-induced currents from a solar storm, right? that caused sparks and, and fires. 
And so we know right now, and this is something, Jan, I've, again, twice I've briefed the Secretary of Energy and I've showed her, and I could show you the, the, um, the tables that, that demonstrate that the industry-led and government-approved standards to protect our infrastructure against these harmful ground-induced currents, right? Those currents go into our transformers. The transformers, we said, are nearly irreplaceable. That the level of protection we have from the current standards are so low that the grid will go down if we have a significant storm like the 1921 storm, like the 1859 Carrington solar storm that some of your viewers may have heard about. So when I say that it's 100% certain, all I'm saying is the level of protection we have now and the standards that have been set by the industry and approved by the government guarantee that the grid goes down if we suffer a solar storm uh, of, of a significant magnitude. Never mind these other routes, right? Which of course we haven't even discussed cyber attacks yet, which you know we've I can't I, I can't help but think of solar winds since we're talking about solar yeah. and and uh, and yeah. uh, that's right. And 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 look the same the same regulatory capture that resulted in a completely uh, dangerously erroneous solar storm standard. That same regulatory capture between the industry and the federal government has resulted in cybersecurity standards uh, that we believe are, are not nearly what they should be, right? I mean, right now, there is no standard approved by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, FERC, that would require the detection, mitigation, or removal of malware in the grid. Yet we know that the, Russian, the Russians used what they call black energy malware to take down the Ukrainian grid. And we know that some of that malware is in our own grid, yet there's no standard that requires the industry to, to find it, mitigate it, and remove it, despite the fact that our coalition has, on multiple occasions, petitioned the federal government to create such standards. You would think they would care about this. Some do. Look, and, and let me just say, and I probably should have said this a lot earlier in the interview, um, that you know, when people find out that I, I served in the Marines, you know, hey, thank you for your service, which I appreciate. You know? The reality is there was nothing that I ever did in uniform or ever would do that actually would impact the day-to-day -day survival of the American people. That's the truth. And the people who keep the lights on in this country, they do. They do provide for our survival every day. So the first thing I should mention is to just thank those that work in the electric power industry. They're actually trying to keep the lights on. The engineers that are out there, there's some phenomenal people working really hard every single day. Unfortunately, when it comes to the the regulatory environment when it comes to the, the rules that govern that industry. Well, there's a lot of people who've been obstructing uh, and, and lobbying against really reasonable, prudent, and affordable methods to protect this infrastructure. You know, before we start talking about those, tell me about yourself. Yes, you've served in the Marines, you're in the reserves later, um, and you've been, you know, briefing the Secretary of Energy on these some of these vulnerabilities. So how, how, where did you come from? Sure, right. Yeah, well, look, I, I felt a calling to serve uh, in uniform really since I can remember. I mean, I think uh, to me it goes all the way back to being about four years old and, and uh, Christmas time at my grandparents getting a G.I. Joe pajamas for Christmas, right? And to me, that wasn't pajamas, it was a uniform, <laughs> right? And so, so I had this calling to serve and uh, identified the Marines as the, the branch that I wanted to serve in, and I swore into the Marine Corps uh, on my 18th birthday. And I kind of told myself, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd stay in until they kicked me out. <laughs> and we reached that point. 
uh, I took a stand uh, on the on the COVID vaccine mandate, and and, uh, and unfortunately, you know, uh, mine and many others, our religious accommodations were were denied. I waited a year. I appealed and did everything I could, and uh, I was not allowed to continue serving. And so that service uh, ended. But I was very blessed that um, the last half of my career in the reserves, uh, that I had this civilian job, the civilian job with the Center for Security Policy, right? A nonprofit founded by uh, Frank Gaffney, who worked for President Reagan. Frank knew all about nuclear EMP years before it was ever declassified, right? He's been worried about the grid uh, for decades. And so when I, when I got this job, which is more than a job, it's a calling, right? A calling in life. He sat me down and he, and he taught me about electromagnetic pulse and he taught me about these threats and then you know he assigned me the duty of managing this nationwide secure the grid coalition and you know i'm not i'm not a physicist i'm not an engineer i'm an infantry guy right but i was so blessed to be the apprentice to some of the world's foremost experts in all of these different threats to this most critical infrastructure and to be able to translate from them to the american people and to our policymakers uh, the reality of those threats what needs to be done uh, to, to defend against them. And yet, you know, that includes uh, our current Secretary of Energy, includes uh, you know, President Trump before he was president. You know, the first time he was briefed on electromagnetic pulse, uh, our, our organization made that possible. Not just him, but, but many. Anybody who will listen, regardless of political party, anybody who will listen to learn about this incredible vulnerability that we need to remedy. You know, I just, it struck me that, uh, you know, you were a force reconnaissance Marine. Right, and what, tell me briefly what that means or for the benefit of the audience, because it strikes me it sort of fits well with your current role, actually. Well, you know, so the, the reconnaissance community in the Marines, uh, it's, it's supposed to be the eyes and ears for the commander, right? Uh, we're supposed to identify uh, our, our adversaries and, and what, what they're doing on the battlefield to be able to report back uh, to our higher headquarters. It, it, it's been a blessing and a privilege to be part of that community. The Marines I served with are among the best uh, in the nation. And uh, in fact, you know, 17 years ago, last night, you know, we lost just incredible patriots um, to, to, to combat operations in Iraq. Um, and these were recon Marines who gave it their all, right? But the eyes and ears for the battlefield commander is, is essentially what, uh, what I've been focused on in the military as a reconnaissance officer. But it, yes, it blended very well with my civilian job to be the eyes and ears for our policymakers when it came to profound threats to our security. And so I was blessed that that civilian job actually made it possible for a short period of time, for a couple of years, for me to work on this in uniform. I mean, I was re recruited by the U.S. Air Force's Electromagnetic Defense Task Force, EDTF, uh, to be a staff member of that organization and to help them uh, form uh, a task force to address electromagnetic spectrum threats to, to produce two uh, reports on this issue that lay out um, the challenges. Uh, and so it, it's been a privilege to serve in that capacity, both in the reconnaissance community uh, and when asked um, in, the, in the Air Force's EDTF. So maybe briefly, give me kind of the overview of the specific grid-related threats that are coming from China. And you know, I know this is you see that as kind of the biggest the biggest threat among the many you've just described. Sure, sure. You know, when it comes to China and and their ability to affect our grid, we talked a little bit about policy, right? So if if we adopt policies here that rely on China to produce whether it's transformers 
or the inverters, all the thousands, tens of thousands of inverters that we need for our renewables, right, uh, for, for wind and solar, the wind and solar technology itself, the markets are cornered by China in many of those areas, if not all. So there's the policy aspect, right, where we embrace policies that create and enhance a dependency on China while at the same time creating vulnerabilities because we are not producing uh, enough electricity. That's one. The second one, uh, you mentioned before, cyber, right? So we know that China has a significant cyber capability. And that can range from cyber espionage, where they're stealing secrets and, and our own you know, uh, power pr production, whether it's nuclear power or otherwise, uh, cyber attack, right? Planting malware uh, and different forms of, of malicious cyber intrusions into our infrastructure. Supply chain, we, we mentioned already, producing those, those different things uh, with, say, for example, a hardware backdoor that would allow them to remotely control or, or turn off or turn on certain things. Um, electromagnetic attack, right? So we know that the Chinese are obviously nuclear capable. It's part of their warfighting doctrine uh, to, to, um, to focus on both cyber and part of their cyber doctrine is the use of electromagnetic pulse, right? That's both for the Russians and the Chinese. So nuclear EMP is in the cards if they wanted to. I and mean, we just watched a, a balloon transit the entire continental United States. That balloon could be a platform for an EMP attack. It doesn't take a nuclear missile. It doesn't take, uh, you know, um, an intercontinental ballistic missile. It can be, it can be uh, one of their proxies, North Korea. You know, North Korea had a, a vessel called the Chongchong Gang that went to Cuba, picked up two SA-2 missiles, surface-to-air missiles, uh, on their launchers. Now, they weren't nuclear-tipped at the time, but it, it turned off its transponder and transited the entire Gulf of Mexico and turned it back on right outside the Panama Canal. So U.S. intelligence said, uh, we need to look at this. What did they find? They, they trapped it in the Panama Canal. They found these two missiles buried underneath tons of sugar. But that could have been a trial run by a proxy of communist China, right? And so a, a surface-to-air missile is, is another method. Uh, and then just physical sabotage. I mean, you, you look at our open borders, you look at just our immigration policy with respect to, to this, you know, to the People's Republic of China, they put the right people here with the right know-how. Um, they can conduct physical attacks on this grid well, as well. you know, just to your point, I'm getting lots of reports of actually very significant numbers of military-age Chinese nationals coming through the southern border, um, through the Darien Gap um, and so forth. Absolutely. That's sure. Michael Yan is down there. Uh, uh, basically, you know, track, tracking some of this is kind of, is kind of you know, shocking because you don't think of that. You think of it as generally, you know, people from the region, you know, right. economic migrants and so forth, but it's actually quite a number of people from all over the place, including communist China. That's right. Yeah. That's exactly right. And so, and the reality is, as we said before, China has identified this vector of attack as one that could be effective in doing exactly what Sun Tzu said, right? Subduing an enemy without fighting. And so uh, we have to recognize that um, that they have identified that as a vector of attack, and we need to defend it with as much intensity as they are attacking it, right? Uh, and, and that's what we failed to do so far. So tell me about the uh, Secure the Grid Coalition. This is something that can get American citizens involved in the process of trying to help people become aware this is important. Sure. I'm very convinced, even from the you know our relatively short conversation on this, that this is an incredibly important issue, and a completely bipartisan one, I might add, as well, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah so, so the, the good thing is that there's hope, right? 
Um, and, and look, as we talk about this, and, and if we get into the issues of regulatory capture and, and your viewers are sitting here thinking like, why, why are we, on? They, they probably are getting a little bit angry and they should, right? And so, you know, I, I go back to a quote from St. Augustine who said, hope has two beautiful daughters, anger and courage. Anger at the way things are, courage to make sure they don't remain that way. And our Secure the Grid Coalition is a venue uh, for people who get righteously angry about this inaction and who have the courage to work on it to do so, right, to collaborate. Uh, it, it's co-chaired. It's a bipartisan group. It's co-chaired by Ambassador uh, Woolsey, who was, you know, uh, President Clinton's director of central intelligence, uh, and Newt Gingrich, you know, Speaker of the House. Uh, and it, we've got hundreds of members around the country who volunteer. I mean, we're talking about a volunteer effort uh, in their states and, and at the federal level to continue trying to shape policies to protect this most critical infrastructure. And, and I, I have to say that probably the single most valuable uh, product of that effort just lately has been the film you mentioned earlier. Uh, one of the members of that Secure the Grid Coalition, David Tice, uh, sank an immense amount of money, time, and effort. Uh, he was able to talk to Dennis Quaid, who's the narrator, and now you've got, I mean, just David Tice and Dennis Quaid going all around the country because they care about this, but the film they produce, Grid Down, Power Up, is the culmination of nearly a decade of interviews of the experts in our coalition uh, in a film that, that can teach Americans everything I've been trying to brief policymakers for nine years. It can teach them in less than an hour. And the neat thing is that, that the producer on his website, griddownpowerup.com, uh, made a tab on that site, participate. You click on that tab and all the policy recommendations that we've been promoting for years you click on that and you can actually get involved. So we have now a platform where the efforts of our coalition can be massively expanded. And people who watch this, who, who are concerned about it, can actually get involved by viewing the film, sharing the film, and then clicking on that participate tab, which will give them the ability to send messages to the people who could actually fix this problem. Because again, like you said, it is a fixable problem. Well, so, and so how? There's, apparently there's relatively easy ways to harden some of this infrastructure that aren't that expensive. And, and it, it, like it's not a complete replacement of these transformers, for example, which of course is very difficult. Yeah, yeah so let's, let's just, we'll take one example. We'll take the example uh, for the threat that we can't deter, the sun, right? Uh, and we look at the sun, uh, we know it makes those harmful ground-induced currents that can travel into those transformers. Well, there's, there's technologies out there, uh, neutral ground blocker, for example, that if they applied those to the transformers that are vulnerable, not, not every transformer is vulnerable to solar weather. It depends on the length of the lines. It depends on a lot of factors. But the analysis that's been done so far, the transformers that are vulnerable to that threat were they to install these neutral ground blockers on the transformers themselves, uh, that they could solve that problem for the entire United States for just over $4 billion, okay? Now, and, and here again, this is what I explained to the Secretary of Energy after she made comments about the, the, both the infrastructure bill, the bipartisan infrastructure bill, 1.2 trillion, and she talked about the Inflation Reduction Act. I only used the, the infrastructure bill. Theoretically, it should be about infrastructure, right? One third of 1% of that infrastructure bill could solve the problem of solar weather completely, right? Four billion 
is one-third of 1% of 1.2 trillion. Yet there's no indication, despite multiple, multiple attempts to get them to spend that money on that infrastructure, money that our elected officials have already set aside. Thus far, there's not any indication they're spending it on that, which means if we don't protect those transformers, they go down at some point in the future. And so that's just one example. I mean, your viewers can, can just drive down the road. They can drive down the highway, right, and see walls erected to protect neighborhoods from the sound generated on that street and keep driving and look at the substation that provides the lifeblood to that neighborhood with you know, maybe a chain link fence and a padlock. So uh, you know, <laughs> where, it, where it should be protected, ballistic protection to make sure the transformers can't be shot up, they can't be viewed. So it, it is, it's a fixable problem. You would think that the industry would be very interested in maintaining the integrity of these structures, right? Because their business depends on it. I'm, this, I've, a lot of people might find it confusing why they're not more interested. Yeah. And again, some, there are some in the industry that are. There are some companies that are absolutely doing the right thing. They just are doing it quietly, and they're not stepping out and, and, and boldly talking about it. But writ large, the industry as a whole, there is what we call regulatory capture, right? And, and it is a little bit difficult to understand because you would think for business continuity's sake, right, a lot, of it, a lot of it has to do with just, you know, profit, quarterly, you know, the, your quarterly profit reports, um, and, and really, uh, you know, a love of money over doing the right thing. And so, it, you know, we see this where, as an example, Jan, the, the, uh, the industry, the entire industry, on an annual basis, spends about 145 to 150 million dollars in political influence and lobbying at just the federal level, right? So in, in this city and in, in the offices where our U.S. elected officials uh, serve, about 145 to 150 million a year. That does not count the state and local level and all of the political influence and lobbying there. That entire industry pays about $4 million a year, the entire industry, in fines. When you look at the last 10 years of the fines that they've paid for violating the rules that they created, right? The industry creates the rules. The federal government has to approve them. When they violate their own rules, the federal fines are only about $4 million a year. So when, when you look at you know, the balance of where they put their money and effort, it goes into maintaining control, right? As opposed to actually protecting the infrastructure. And that process is designed by the industry to be that way. I mean, Jan, we talked about the 2003 blackout. And I think we should take a minute to, to look at two factors. The result of that 2003 blackout in August, the Great Northeast blackout was that you had the creation of NERC, the North American Electric Liability Corporation, which is the industry nonprofit that makes the rules. And, and FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, either approves or, or disapproves. Well, that process after the tree branch in Ohio created a blackout that, that cost 55 million customers their electricity. Do you know how long it took for them to create a standard for vegetation management? Vegetation management means cutting trees, right? Nine and a half years nine and a half years to create a, a tree cutting standard, right? And so, and then when you look at the solar standard that I just mentioned and what I showed the Secretary of Energy and I, I can show your viewers, um, you know, that process w was similar in the sense that the industry controlled that process and used junk science, what is what we call it. Uh, they used data, bad data in to produce bad data out that would require them not to have to take action. And probably one of the most egregious things, and we discovered this with the Air Force 
Electromagnetic Defense Task Force, when it comes to the threat of nuclear electromagnetic pulse, right? It just so happened, I think by divine providence, that the day that the industry and the government released their study on nuclear EMP, right, the Electric Power Research Institute, a government, a, an industry-funded uh, research organization worked with the U.S. government on a three-year study on the effects of nuclear EMP on the bulk power system. And the day that they produced and published that report, it's about that thick, happened to be the second summit of the U.S. Air Force Electromagnetic Defense Task Force. And so I took the world's foremost experts and put them all in a room and handed them copies of that report. And they started to go through it. And the report that they produced, uh, which is, I mean, you can, your, your viewers can find it online at Over the Horizons magazine, an Air Force publication, pointed out just how dangerously erroneous this study was. And I'll give you one data point, because we just talked about the 2003 blackout, right? That 2003 blackout caused by single point of failure, tree branch in Ohio. When you look, like, when you look at the industry-funded government-approved study by the Electric Power Research Institute on the effects of high-altitude EMP on the bulk power system, the table that they showed, the projections of the amount of electricity that we would lose in this eastern interconnection, right, the eastern grid where we are here in Washington, D.C., they projected we would lose only about 40% of the load, the electrical load that we lost in August 2003 with the Great Northeast Blackout caused by a single tree branch, one single point of failure, where a high-altitude nuclear blast would create thousands of simultaneous points of failure. That one data point will give you an idea of, of the, the industry-funded studies that inform the government-approved regulations that are supposed to protect our grid. Well, so I'm, I'm glad we're talking about this because, you know, the viewers of this program are no strangers to the concept of regulatory capture and, you know, and this type of reporting that you're just describing. So they might think to themselves, well, so where is the hope? How can we change these large bodies that are determined to be doing things in this, you know, highly problematic way? Right. Right. Well, the hope really comes from the bottom up. Honestly, I mean, we've uh, we've seen again in Texas where some steps have been taken. Right now, there's actually legislation in Texas authored by a, a state senator, Bob Hall, uh, that would create a commission at the state level that would analyze all these threats and decide for the state whether it how it would address those threats as opposed to just depending on the federal government. There's no reason why states can't do that around the country. There obviously there's an inter interconnected nature, right? Uh, but it doesn't, it doesn't pro prohibit them from doing it bottom-up. We see pilot projects. Uh, San Antonio, Texas, one of the most valuable things that came out of that Air Force Electromagnetic Defense Task Force was a pilot project in San Antonio. And, and I was so grateful for the opportunity. In fact, the, the first summit, it was a classified briefing at the time. All the results have now been unclassified, but uh, they, they had to have one briefer cover the... the um, the final briefing of all these generals and admirals and the former CIA director, and they said, well, we think it should be the Marine, right? Uh, I was the only Marine there, and it just so happened from this civilian job that I have that, that, I, uh, that I had an expertise in this area. And I, I knew for years that all the experts said, well, if we could just get one pilot project started somewhere in the country, 
that can write the playbook for this and inspire the action, right? Uh, that's what we need to do. And, and I, I put that in the briefing. And all these people shook their head and said, yes, we need to do that. And, and so right now in the town of San Antonio, uh, you have Joint Base San Antonio and you have the surrounding civilian community who are actually working together to apply the know-how to protect against electromagnetic spectrum threats like EMP, not just the infrastructure for the base, but the, the surrounding critical infrastructure. That's, that is a hopeful story that needs to be translated to the rest of the country. And it can be if we have enough people who, who get behind this. Any final thoughts as we finish? No, just that, um, you know, we're running out of time. You know, Dr. Peter Vincent Pry was the chairman of the Congressional EMP Commission, and uh, he passed away uh, late last year. And, and that's what he says, you know, we know how to fix this. Um, he, he was worried about whether we had enough time. And one of the things that he shared with me, I just would share with your audience, you know, we ought to be, once we grasp the gravity of this vulnerability, we need to, number one, uh, we need to be better prepared, right? You think about the citizens of Moore County, North Carolina. That was a no-notice outage, right? That physical attack, the rifle fire on those substations, turned the lights off immediately. There was no weather report saying a hurricane was coming. We need to be better prepared uh, to be able to live without electricity for as long as we can. And, and of course, as you learn about this, it, it, it makes you think differently about how to be prepared. And so some you know, think, oh my gosh, you know, it, it, Dr. Price said it, it makes you want to run to the frontier, right, uh, and so to speak. And what, Pry, what, what Peter Price said was that um, we need to follow the example of our founders, the founders of this country. They had an infinite frontier to run to, and instead they turned and they fought tyranny, right, and they won. And so, yes, we should be prepared, but we need to fight the tyranny of inaction by getting involved, just same way that our founders fought the tyranny of their day. And that's what's such a blessing now about having a, a, a film, Grid Down Power Up, and a website, griddownpowerup.com, and the Participate tab that gives every American the opportunity to do just that. Well, Tommy Waller, it's such a pleasure to have had you on. Yeah, it's been an honor. Thank you, sir. Thank you all for joining Tommy Waller and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kalik. Mm -hmm.